This week on Punch Mountain, Lieutenant Pete Mitchell is back. Only this time, 30 years later, he's the best underachieving go-nowhere captain there's ever been. Get your cell phone off the bar because we're watching Top Gun Maverick. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies, not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake. I'm joined, as always, by the toppest of top guns, Mr. David Hada. David, how are you? Doing well, my wingman. How are you? I'm also doing well. We are a couple of well-doing individuals. <laughs> I got, ah, I'm treading water. No, uh, I'm doing good. Did you ever consider yourself a good wingman? I don't know, David. That's a good question. I, I, I honestly cannot remember too many wingman moments. I know I've been a bad wing friend sometimes. Like one time, David, we were stuck uh, at someone's house, you and I, and uh, that person wanted to have a deep emotional conversation very late at night. And I remember being like, I'm going to pretend to be asleep <laughs> so that I don't have to partake of this. So uh, there you go. <laughs> Do you remember what I'm talking about? I do. I do remember what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, God. If only there's a Patreon, there'd be a level where it's like, you could get the details on Mac and David's references. <laughs> All right, David. Opening salvo here. Top Gun Maverick. What did you think? I feel bad. I actually, I'm a little, I'm, I'm a little nervous to go into this one because this is going to be one of those movies that really seem to connect with a lot of people, if not everybody, except me. This movie is like a choose your own adventure that picked every page that I would not. And so it's, it was a bit of a struggle. I, I think we're going to have fun talking about it, but uh, I, I don't want to come across like, a, like an asshole or something. I'm just a well-meaning guy. Look, you came to me, all right? You're the audience. I'm not on Fallon. All right, I didn't buy a Super Bowl ad to do this show. You, you're, you're downloading this. You, you're, you're listening to this. Uh, so bless you, and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> How about you, Mac? Uh, what, what are your opening thoughts going into this? I thought this movie was a lot of fun, and it surprised me, David, because I I didn't really have any sort of vested interest in this, and it just kind of felt like another one of these, you know, franchise revisits. Like I don't think I was, you know, uh, sleeping outside the theaters when they announced the fourth Rambo movie, or uh, well, actually, you know, I was about to say Blade Runner twenty forty nine, but David, that is one of my favorite movies, so that's a bad example. Is that right? I I love it. I love it, man. I love it so much. Cool. I know a lot of people do not like it, but that is okay with me. Like what you like. But yeah, the other thing that's kind of weird about this movie is besides being really fun, it, it's hard for me to connect it to Top Gun. So Star Wars Force Awakens, when Harrison Ford and uh, you know Lawrence Chewbacca, when they pop up as Han Solo and, and Chewie, I was like, oh shit, look, it's Han Solo from the Star Wars movies. But for some reason, seeing like Tom Cruise in the jumpsuit again, I just like I was it just felt me like, oh look, it's Tom Cruise. It wasn't like, oh shit, it's Maverick. And I think part of that is because that cocksure character that is Maverick, that's kind of Tom Cruise's bread and butter. Like I feel like he's played variations on that character throughout the years. So when I started this movie, I didn't feel like I was starting like chapter two. I feel like I was like starting its own thing. Because for me, this wasn't like the continuing adventures of Maverick. I felt no emotional connection between the Maverick of what, 1986? Yes. To the Maverick of uh, 2022. All right, Dave, before we go any farther, let's clear up some common questions. If you type in the term Top Gun Maverick into Google, Google says these are the questions people are also asking. So let's quickly answer them. All right, Mac, is Top Gun 2 streaming anywhere? Yeah, it's streaming a lot of places. Just look for it. David, can you watch Top Gun Maverick at home? If you're going to ask questions like this, I wish you would. When can I stream Top Gun Maverick? Now, idiot. God damn it. 
Who is Penny in Top Gun 1986? You're thinking of Inspector Gadget. She had a dog named Brain. That's very true. There you go. Look, we clear some things up. David, before we see an elite group of Navy pilots feel the need for speed, I feel the need to, for a speedy, not very long, check-in on our friendship. David Hotta, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, to let the audience in a little bit, we are recording this on a bit of a delay. We're about a few days behind where we normally would record this. So like, I've been sitting with this movie for a few extra days. So I've just spent the past few days just getting extra, extra nervous. Like uh, like my dad's going to come home and I've got a bad report card. But uh, other than that, I'm doing all right. I, I, as a matter of fact, I feel pretty good about it because... I, you know, as you know, I'm going through my digital clutter. I'm just, you know, cleaning up files and whatnot. I finally got to that file labeled MW 2007 through 2015. David, what do you mean by MW? Is that your collection of Mr. Weatherby comics? That's right. Yes. Uh, this is going to be Mascot Wedding. This is going to be our oh. old radio show slash podcast. So, you know, I've got all the episodes still. So I was just kind of going through them just to just to see, just to see what's there. And uh, I see One Insufferable Man and Mac Blake. It's, you know, <laughs> I, I thought for sure you were going to say One Insufferable Man and me, David Hotta. <laughs> no, that's what the old David Hotta would have said. But I, I'm, I'm okay with not being that person anymore. But like, yeah, you know, I think about this movie, you know, spoiler alert, I didn't particularly care for Top Gun Maverick. We'll get into that. I'm coming to it now at an age when I feel like I'm in the wrong. Like, I see people enjoying this movie. I see people going to see it over and over again. I feel dumb for not being a part of that. As opposed to 10, 15 years ago, I would have been the person to be like, you idiots, I'm here to tell you the real, and I'm just so glad I'm not that person, Mac, and I hope the audience is too. Uh, how are you, Mac? I am doing good. And, and yeah, David, this is actually a movie that people have asked us uh, to do, or at least asked me to do a couple of times. Has anyone bothered you about this? No, no one. Uh, I, I'm in Siberia, my man. Hold on, let me backtrack. I didn't mean to use the phrase bothered. bothered you. <laughs> Look, if you want to talk to me about this podcast, trust me, you are not bothering me. You are delighting me. But yeah, normally we tend to do movies that, you know, we feel like we're going to enjoy because we don't want to waste time talking about things we didn't like. Spoiler alert, I did like this movie. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out throughout the episode. But yeah, I was on Instagram today, David, and someone posted their own review of Ant-Man and Wasp, Quantumania. And they didn't like it. And it's like, great, man. Why are you wasting time typing up a letterbox review about it? Go ahead and fucking live or find one, something else you like. I'm not saying let's not think about things critically, but man, time is short to, to bitch about shit you don't like. It's been nice the past few years, especially kind of once pandemic hit and the way we consumed media shifted. It's been nice to not have to be on top of everything because there's just so much of everything that like I don't have to be a part of the conversation. So like, yeah, Ant-Man and the Wasp, if you don't like it, cool. There's a billion other channels. There's other stuff playing in the theater. Like, you don't have to be handcuffed to just what's coming out. Just because, like, who gives a shit what you have to say? So enjoy episode 17 of Punch Mountain. <laughs> so how are you doing, Mac Blake? I'm doing pretty well. I did some uh, stand-up comedy this week. And after one show I did, I saw some familiar faces. These dudes, Keenan and Taylor, we randomly bumped into each other in a mall, you know, last year. And they're like, hey, are you Mac Blake? We're friend uh, we're, uh, we like your podcast. Well, I guess they came to the stand-up show because afterwards we, we bumped into each other in a parking lot. And I was like, hey, I, I know I know you dudes. And they're like, yeah, it's uh, it, it's your boys K&T. And I was like, what? I was like, oh, did you hear the shout-out on the podcast? And they're like, yeah, you called us your boys K&T. And I was like, oh, right, right, right. Because I'll be honest with you, David. The first time they said your boys K&T, I thought they said, yeah, it's your boys Cantina. And I was like, boys Cantina? What the? What was I talking about on the show? And then the second time they said it, I was like, oh, boys Cantina. Okay, yeah, I remember that now. But uh, so what I'm trying to say is, first of all, thanks for saying hi again. I'm glad you like the podcast. If you're listening right now, it's your choice. Do you want to continue to be known as my boys K&T or do you want to be known as collectively as the boys cantina? 
Because I got to say, I don't hate that name. The Boys Cantina feels like a collection. Like that almost <laughs> feels like the penalty box that we're going to put a listeners into or something like, all right, you're going into the Boys Cantina for that one. It does remind me of legendary Austin nightclub, the Boys Cellar. So I don't know if that factors into your enjoyment of that nickname or not. But uh, what's up, Boys Cantina? I don't know. I like it. I, but look, I can also go back to Boys Cantina. This is aimed at two listeners. And well, but tell you what, I'll update everyone if they update me on what they want their nickname to be called. Also, David, we got to open up the Punch Mountain mailbag and read some mountain mail. Well, I'll just let that falcon land on my arm. Yes, David, if you could grab the email out of that falcon's mouth. <laughs> got it. Yeah, David, because somebody sent us a link. Uh, Dustin, friend of the show, Dustin S., that said that they have announced that there is going to be another Riddick sequel. We manifested it, David. Get out of town, Charlie Brown. We are doing it already. Look at the show. I know. I clicked on the article, and, it's, and there's a quote in there that said, uh, it was from the director David Tui, excuse me, writer-director. Mm-hmm. Tui said it was time to, quote-unquote, honor the fans, call to action with Riddick Furia. I was like, yeah, honor the fans, call to action. We did it. I'm so close to ordering like a Mission Accomplished banner to just yeah. unfurl behind us. <laughs> It sucks now that I have to go see uh, Riddick Furia opening night. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know if I'm that pumped for it. Opening night level pumped, but now I feel like I, 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 it's expected of me. Poor us having to sit through another Riddick. Tell you what, you know what? When Riddick Furia comes out, we will do that one. Like That'll be the podcast that week. So We'll uh, rent a theater and, and <laughs> live stream it. I don't know. We'll figure out a, a watch along or something. Oh, damn, David. Is it time? Max, strap in and get your helmet on. We're going in. David, what is your history with Top Gun Maverick? And while you're at it, what is your history with Top Gun? Top Gun, I never cared for it. I was, you know, I saw it when I was like eight years old. It came out in 86, so I was six when it came out. Yeah, no, it bored me as a kid. You know, as a kid, you know how hard it is to be bored by a, a plane movie when you're a child? But it it did. It just never hit with me. The video game was also terrible. Like, when Top Gun Maverick was initially announced, the Wikipedia got changed and the plot synopsis for Top Gun Maverick was someone's going to actually beat the video game Top Gun. And I was like, that's a pretty good idea for a movie. That's funny. When Top Gun Maverick was announced, I was excited about it in the same way that I get excited about all nostalgia stuff. Just, you know, it's more of a curiosity just to see what they're going to do with it, how they're going to pull it off. But it didn't compel me to see it. You know, I'm glad we're doing it for this episode because I feel like my window is closing. Like once the Oscars come and go, I'm not going to have any interest in this. So no, I'm glad we watched it when we did. What is your history, Mac Blake, with Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick? Well, the original Top Gun kind of felt inescapable. I mean, my dad was also in the Air Force at the time. He was not a pilot, uh, but it just kind of, back when we owned like three VHS tapes, David, one of them was Top Gun. The other two, I believe, were Cinderella and E.T. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, I only wanted to watch one of those, I guess, Top Gun, because E.T. Was, it was weird. It was a creepy movie for a kid, I guess. I like it now. Yeah, I mean, it, Top Gun just kind of feels like part of our culture. Like, it, it's one of those things where I was maybe in my 20s that I even stopped to think, like, oh, is it a good movie or not? That's like wondering if banana's like a good fruit. You know, like, a, who am I to judge this thing? It just is. But when they announced Top Gun, you know, Maverick, and it was like, oh, it's by the director of um, Tron Legacy, you know, whatever but also by Oblivion, which I enjoyed. Oh, sure. You know, what's this guy's name? Joseph Kaczynski. You know, again, it just kind of felt like, I wasn't really excited about it because it just felt like, you know, there is a franchise IP list that's like, okay, we made another Indiana Jones. Uh, Now we got to make another, let me spin this wheel, tick, 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 Top Gun. It just felt kind of like, sort of like a cash grab in a way. That doesn't necessarily seem like Tom Cruise's style, but it does seem like Tom Cruise's style. It's like, just keep making movies that people want to watch. And so, I don't know. But then when it came out, like people just like kept talking about it. And I was like, oh, are we 
wait, was this actually good? Did people actually like this? And now somehow, David, in terms of U.S. grosses, it is the top five. It's the number five movie of all time. Uh, it, it's taken off, an uh, airplane pun intended. And uh, I actually have seen this movie before because we did it for Master Pancake. Oh, is that right? Yeah. We did like a live riff of it, uh, Master Pancake, Austin's favorite uh, movie mocking group. And maybe I'm going to go say the Southwest United States favorite movie mocking group. But, you know, even watching it, like, you know, with the goal of making fun of it, there was still like, I remember one moment, we'll get to it later, where I was like, oh, shit, like this movie is kind of fun. I remember liking it. And it was like, oh, it'll be nice to watch this thing without, you know, having to make jokes over it. I'll write jokes down while watching it. This, this is what we'll do. But David, just for someone who hasn't seen it, to level set, can you give the people the back of the box description? Oh, you bet I will. A high-octane spectacle the likes of which the world has never seen before, Top Gun Maverick is the perfect adrenaline rush. Those are two quotes, by the way. One from Matt Neglia from Next Best Picture, one from Emma Stefanski of Thrillist. After more than 30 years of service as a top naval aviator, Pete Maverick Mitchell, Tom Cruise, is where he belongs, pushing the envelope as a courageous test pilot. Yet Maverick must confront the ghosts of his past when he returns to Top Gun to train a group of elite graduates and comes face to face with Lieutenant Bradshaw Miles Teller, the son of his former wingman, Goose. Bitter rivalries ignite as the pilots prepare for a specialized mission, which will require the ultimate sacrifice from those chosen to fly it. 2022, 130 minutes, directed by Joseph Kaczynski, rated PG-13 for sequences of intense action and some strong language. It's a solid back of the box, I guess. Yeah, I got no uh, problem with it. No notes. Well, I mean, it's just a uh, bitter rivalries ignite as pilots prepared for a specialized mission, which will require the ultimate sacrifice from those chosen to fly it. And uh, those chosen to fly it not informed that it will require this, <laughs> as we will <laughs> see later in the movie. All right, David, how does this thing start? Oh, my goodness, Mac, you've never seen anything like it. We open with the same credits we had 36 years ago, right down to the Kenny Loggins soundtrack. Then we go somewhere completely different, the Mojave Desert, where Captain Pete Mitchell, a.k.a. Maverick Tom Cruise, is enjoying breakfast in his living room slash airplane hangar before riding off to his job as a courageous test pilot, like the back of the box said. So right in the beginning of this movie, we see the, uh, what do you call those, the production company, shingles? I've always called them production cards. Okay, production cards. We get the production card for Skydance, and on that card it says, Celebrating 10 years. Save it for your own fucking time, Skydance. This movie's not called Skydance 10th Anniversary Party. I don't give a shit. God damn it, Skydance. There's a time and a place. That The poor designer of that graphic. Yeah, fuck you. I don't care. Burning six hells, designer of that graphic. But David, we also got an interesting credit. It said it was a Jerry Bruckheimer production, but it said a Jerry Bruckheimer slash Don Simpson production. That's interesting because Don Simpson, he dead. Oh, he been dead, but it's good to see his kids get thrown some money uh, because, yeah, you know, he was very famously, I guess, uh, one of the producers of Top Gun during his hot streak, him and Jerry Bruckheimer. You know, if you are going to recreate the nostalgia of the opening sequence, it's nice to see Simpson Bruckheimer. Yeah, and Bruckheimer said that Simpson was a big advocate of the original Top Gun movie, and it, it only felt right to put his name on there. So that's that's cool. It's cool to see a friend honoring a friend. But David, yeah, we get the same opening. In fact, I, I think I read somewhere that these are some of the exact same shots as the original Top Gun. Like, they took some... Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Is this all new footage or some new footage or all old footage? I was wondering about that because it really just felt like they did a 4K upconvert on this. Yeah, they might have. I mean, the other thing about Top Gun is that movie came out in the 80s, which we were still uh, Cold Warriors back then with the USSR. And so having like this commercial for the Navy didn't feel, you know, it felt very much of its time. 
That's the idea of seeing like U.S. warplanes like landing on a aircraft carrier. Like there's a part in the opening credits where you see, you know, the people who are working the deck of the battleship, like after an airplane lands, they're like high-fiving or whatever. And I'm watching this. And I'm like, why are you guys high-fiving? What the fuck did you do? You didn't land this plane. You just waved your little batons. Uh, look at me honoring our soldiers. Uh, but I feel like in the 1980s watching this, audience members would have been high-fiving like, yeah, you see that sick plane land? Fuck you, Gorbachev. Step to this bitch. <laughs> so I, I don't, it was just kind of a reminder of like, this is not, this is not the era where I'm horny for the military anymore. Me being, of course, David, the U.S. people. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, I, I have that same disconnect generally. Not nearly as much as I do with police movies in 2023, but it's, I still have a very uh, complicated relationship with the military. So yeah, it's, you know, we're revisiting this thing 30 plus years later and it's, it's trying to recapture that old feeling and it just, it feels weird. Yeah, because of, of all the parts of, of Top Gun, the first one that I liked, this opening scene, I know the point was almost kind of like uh, that James Bond opening shot where he, he turns and he, he fires and you see the blood come down like the scope, right? Where it's kind of like, oh, hey, get ready. We're in the Top Gunniverse now. But, but this particular footage, I guess, of airplanes landing, I was not, I'm not nostalgic for it. So I kind of just was like a little bored. You know, now that I think about it, it wouldn't surprise me if they tried to recreate those shots perfectly, because that feels like a meticulous issue. A lot of things about this movie kind of feel like, what difference does it make? Like, mm -hmm. it, it seems impressive that you did that, but really, what difference does it make? So then we go from that opening sequence, you know, or those opening shots, we go to where Maverick lives. I guess he lives in this airplane hangar. Does he own that hangar? Do you get the feeling like that's his house or like it was just assigned to him? Because there's like a his own plane in there that he's fixing i would say that's more than his house that's his pad i think he's got like really kooky like furniture and just you know equipment back there it looks like he made himself at home you think he that's his that's where he lives 365 in that hangar i think that's what the movie wants us to believe it's sort of a shorthand for like see he lives and breathes airplanes he even sleeps next to one that doesn't seem too crazy i mean you look at housing prices now and it's like i bet a hangar in the mojave desert would be a lot cheaper than a house in Austin, Texas these days. But then, you know, again, trading in this nostalgia and trying to... I have a lot of respect for this movie, I, I guess is what I'm trying to say, because it has been 30 years, 30 plus years since the original came out. So you have to cast as wide of a net as possible. You have to get the, the original fans and also introduce a new generation to what the storyline is. But this whole thing feels so weird and clunky because we get this exposition photo wall. It tells the story for us. And then we get, you know, Maverick unzipping his dry cleaning bag, pulling out his bomber jacket that I guess he either hasn't used in forever or he uses every day and puts back in that dry cleaning bag. But then you get like the Hans Zimmer sting. This is when I first knew Hans Zimmer was uh, had contributed to the music of the movie because you get the unzip on the dry cleaning bag and you just get that. Wham. I was like, Zims, I see you, my man. This movie's trying to get a feeling out of me that I don't think I even have in me. Kind of taking that original uh, Top Gun score the kind of like, boom, you know, like the, with those, those misty battleship mornings and uh, using that, it, it was effective the way that they use that sting. By the way, I've made a lot of promises on this show that I've, I've fallen through on, but I think in one episode I promised I'll never look up what Hans Zimmer looks like. Still have not, still have not. I don't, I'll, I never will for whatever reason. I don't even remember why I made such a who gives a shit promise, but I'm sticking to it. Oh, I think we were talking about whether or not he's cut. I think that was the, uh, what? the argument. Weird. Like, is he Danny Elfman? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, because Danny Elfman's like strangely ripped. 
Exactly. Yes. He's like Carrot Top. I think Hans Zimmer. I, I <laughs> again, I don't know if what I originally said, but I am picturing him with just like a, a super thick neck. You know, the kind that if you strapped a belt around, you couldn't strangle him. He would just flex, and that belt would pop off. David, why am I? Whoa, things are heating up over here. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna just put my boat out there and say he looks like the scientist from The Simpsons in the Monorail episode. That's that's my Hans Zimmer. Well, we'll never know, or at least I will never know. So from the hangar, Maverick's going to get to work, only to find out that his little airplane project is being shut down by the evil Rear Admiral Chester Hammer Kane, played by Ed Harris, who wants this project's budget for his own drone project. Doesn't he know how much this job means to Maverick? So Maverick steals the test plane to prove it can get up to Mach 10, and he does because Maverick is infallible. All right, Mac. First of all, Ed Harris, everybody. Uh, Ed Harris who was the rich man's James Tolkien. And if you remember James Tolkien, he's the guy from Top Gun. Yeah, he was the guy that he hated to say, but he had to send those two jokers to Top Gun. <laughs> That's right. And so, yeah, of course, you know, you got a little more money. Go spend it on uh, Ed Harris. But in this one, he's going to play a, uh, a character that they nickname the Drone Ranger. So you already know, ooh, he loves drones so much. He'll do, he'll, <laughs> nothing will stand in his way to finance them. He hates this project so much and he loves money so much. He's coming down to shut this down personally. Mac, what does that entail? Is he really just like ripping pins off of uh, Tom Cruise's lapel? Or like, what is this going to take? I guess it's like, uh, oh, he could have made a phone call, but he's so mad he wants to look someone in the eye when he tells them to, you know, call it a day early. It is a weird thing. But if for some reason, look, there's a lot of this movie where a character's like, this is happening. And you go, okay. And then you just keep going. And this is another reason. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. This could have been a phone call. Or an email. It's 2022, everybody. So word gets back to Maverick that Kane is on his way because he's cutting the project a couple months early. Like they have, you know, two more months to try to get it up to Mach 10. And, you know, they're short. They're like at 9.6, 9.7, something like that. I forget. Yeah, he's like, today's trial was about getting it to Mach 9. We don't got to hit Mach 10 for another couple months. So, yeah, I, so I immediately get, oh, yeah, Ed Harris is kind of a shit for doing this. Like, you know, give, give these people their time frame. But then Maverick decides he's going to, steal this plane before Kane gets there. He's going to try to get it up to Mach 10 just in time, you know, to prove that it can do it. And everybody's like, or, you know, one of his partners is like, well, you know what's going to happen if you do this? And Maverick's response is, I know what happens to everyone else if I don't. And like, I don't know. He's the hero of his own movie. Like you're going to, you're going to hear that quite a few times throughout this movie. It's just like, it's all about his perspective on things. But also, do we know what's going to happen to everyone else if he doesn't do it? The implication is they all lose their jobs. I just feel like they would work on other things, you know? Exactly. And then when, when Ma spoiler, when Maverick fucks up and crashes the airplane, the warrant officer Bernie Hondo Coleman, played by Bashir Salahuddin, who, you know, is like kind of Maverick's partner, or at least, you know, his, his co-worker on this project, he just goes with Maverick to the next thing. Like, it, that was a confusing line. I mean, I get... I get what he meant by it, but it, that, that one didn't track. No, for sure. It's like, hey, man, I get it. This job is a passion project. You can obviously be attached to your work, be attached to your job, that sort of thing. But you're not getting fired out of a cannon. You just you're still in the military. You're still doing OK. So, yeah, it, it's building this thing up. It's building himself up to a level that I'm not going to meet him there. And even in fact, this whole project, because it's like I got the sense or, you know, this movie certainly wants you to believe that Maverick is perhaps the best pilot who ever lived. He, he's exceptional in everything he's done. He's decorated. But like, he is the one. He is the pilot who who can get it up to Mach 10 and who can, who, who can handle that. So it seems to me like the project is flawed if you need one best pilot ever after another. You kind of just need to build a plane and every man can handle, not the best generational pilot. I didn't get a sense that it needed to be him because he's the best pilot ever. 
just because he's like the most daring pilot ever. Because, you know, this experimental aircraft, like, it's, you know, something could go wrong. And we do not know if it can get up to Mach 10 and keep a man alive in the cockpit. But the fact that uh, Maverick's got more uh, guts and brains, he's, he's, the, he's the only guy for the job, at least as the legend of Maverick goes. But David, they know that the Hammer Kane, the Drone Ranger, he's on his way over. So like, we got to hurry up and do this launch before he tells us we can't. And so they go ahead and launch. And there's a shot of Kane pulling up to the gate just as the Dark Star experimental airplane like takes off. And as you see the plane like fly right over Ed Harris, the roof of this little guard station like flies off and then goes back on. It like kind of literally blows the roof up in the air and then it comes back down. You know, I looked it up later and that really happened. They used a different plane as a stand-in. But yeah, they just happened to be filming while this fucking roof came off of a, a building. But I don't know, it was just like a cool little shot. And I was and I said out loud, damn. And so yeah, that was my first markout moment. I marked out, David. That's amazing. So they do the test and Admiral Kane, he like comes into the control room and he's like, we need to bring this plane down immediately. Put me in touch with the pilot. And so Honda was like, "Uh, uh, Maverick, um, the general is ordering you need to come down now. And then Tom Cruise responds with this. Uh, Mav, Admiral Kane is asking. Ordering. Ordering that we bring her down. Uh, Alpha 30. Passing up 5.4 and... This is where we've had trouble with comms, sir. It's the Earth's curvature. Yeah, it's called Earth bulge. Did anyone offer you a coffee? Which is him pretending that his comms are down, but really he's just saying every other word. David, I love a good comms are down joke. You know what I mean? I just, I don't know why when he did that, I was like, hell yeah. I'm normally with you, but when it's a fuck around pilot in his 50s, I'm not connecting the same way. <laughs> See, why do you call him a fuck around pilot? And I, I know that he's kind of a, a maverick, but, you know, the idea that he's still a pilot after all these years seems silly. However, David, there's the idea that you can promote it to your level of incompetence, right? Like, I'm a really good manager at a store, and I'm doing so good managing this grocery store that I could promote it to corporate. But as a corporate grocery store executive, I suck. And so I don't get promoted anymore, and I spend the rest of my career as like a C-plus executive, whereas I could have been an A-plus store manager. I, I just got the impression that, like, Maverick is sabotaging his own career so he doesn't have to stop flying airplanes. Actually, you you said a very interesting thing where he'll do anything to not get promoted because that's going to lead me into, you know, he gets up to Mach 10 and then he gets up to 10.1 and 10.2. And so essentially, you know, the character in this movie is kind of lying to me because just a minute ago he's saying, I know what happens to these people if I don't do this. So you want to believe he's doing this for them. So stop at Mach 10. Land the plane and say, what now, Ed Harris? Go fuck yourself. But to do it at 10.1, 10.2, and then crash the plane, he's not in it for himself. Or, you know, he's not in it for them. He's in it for himself. Mm. David, you are right about that. Because, yeah, if he was a dude who just wanted to test airplanes, he would have stopped at 10. But that, like, oh, I want to go at 10.1, that is a fuck around Maverick. Yeah, that was a real fucking stupid move. So, yeah, you know what? I, I'll reverse my decision. He's, he is a fuck around Maverick. Oh, but that's one of those, you know, that's going to be one of those choose your own adventure pages where... If he stops at 10, I'm in. I'm in this movie immediately. You can cut right to Kane yelling at him and saying, damn it, you're going to Top Gun. But you go to 10.1, 10.2, you're creating a character I don't want to follow. But he's a character that he, you know, uh, feels that need for speed. And so the reason he wants to go to 10.1 is not, you know, just because he wants to experience that. And his love of fast airplane flying, woo-woo, do do <laughs> he loves it so much that it does get in the way of his career and his own personal safety. I'll backtrack a backtrack. I don't think he's quite a fuck around Maverick, but I do feel like he's somewhere in between. You know, he's, he's just more like a, 
he loves flying more than he loves being smart, which maybe that does qualify <laughs> as fuck around. When he hits that Mach 10 threshold, one of the other people in control room got really excited and he stands up and says this. Put that in your Pentagon budget. And then Kane stares at him and the guy immediately sits down. Which, by the way, man, shut the fuck up. What a lame, like, exclamation. If you really were like, yeah, fuck you, then he would have been like, yeah, shove it up your ass. But the fact he said, he's like, yeah, stick that in your budget. It's like, no, that's not a calm down. That seems like that's a that seems like a very written line. I'll, I'll meet the character halfway. It feels like it was rehearsed in the mirror. Like, oh, if I ever see that cane, put that in your leg. I, I, I buy that. So there's a moment, David, where he's here in the airplane. I don't know if he's uh, if it's in the airplane after it's taken off or right before it does, where uh, Maverick says, talk to me, Goose. Which, you know, the way that some people might say a little prayer or something, he wants to, you know, he's he's just looking for a connection for his absent, you know, radio operator from the first Top Gun movie, Goose, played by Anthony Edwards. And, you know, right there, it's it does two things. It wants to provide a very clear connection for us, the audience, to that first Top Gun movie to be like, hey, look, uh, he's still mourning that loss of Goose, as are we, the audience, I guess. But the second thing is just, yeah, it's just that this connection of, you know, like I said, where some people would give up a little prayer, he is leaning on the memory of his friend. It's still very important to him, the character. Now, David, he crashes the airplane, which we do not see. Apparently, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson didn't like that. I don't give a shit. <laughs> we see he's in a diner, right? Diner's packed full. And as soon as the door opens, everyone in the diner turns and looks, which, hey, guys, uh, doors open in diners all the time. Calm down. But Tom Cruise walks in through the door wearing this futuristic flight suit covered in like burn marks, looking kind of like a uh, Looney Tunes character after he got shot. And Tom Cruise looks around the diner and he goes, where am I? And this kid looks up at him. Who's he? By the way, he ordered cereal in a diner. Yeah, come on, kid. <laughs> How much? That's probably like a nine dollar bowl of cereal. You don't need that at a diner. But anyway, and this little kid looks up at Tom Cruise and responds, "Earth," which I gotta admit, pretty funny moment. I I was charmed by that. It worked. You did it, movie. All right. So from there, we're going to Kane's office, where we learn that Maverick is happy in his little rut and doesn't want to be shown the door. But you can only steal so many top secret aircraft. So sorry, Maverick. This is the last straw. You're Going to Top Gun, I guess, thanks to a last-second miracle phone call. Maverick once again manages to avoid any sort of hardship, and it's off to San Diego. I don't know how I don't know what to say about stuff like this because it, it's it happens throughout the movie where Maverick gets himself into a pickle. You know, he digs himself into a hole and he gets bailed out. This is 2022 in relation to 1986, so you have to imagine he's been pulling this kind of shit and getting bailed out for 30 plus years. So like, I, I you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> so when we get dialogue here from Kane, the drone ranger, he talks about his love of drones. These planes you've been testing, Captain. One day, sooner than later, they won't need pilots at all. Pilots that need to sleep, eat, take a piss. Pilots that disobey orders. All you did was buy some time for those men out there. The future is coming. And you're not in it. Is Ed Harris pro machine? Because he kind of takes his same like RoboCop leap. Like I thought the idea of making, you know, flying drones was so we don't have to put U.S. soldiers at risk. Not because we hate U.S. soldiers. Like when they made RoboCop, it was like, oh, great. We have a RoboCop. We don't have to uh, lose any more officers. And they're like, no, we just hate how ineffective these officers are. But it sounds like Kane just like loves the idea of drones. He's like, oh, my precious drones. Mm. Like he'd go and just like kiss them. Like, you're the real soldiers of tomorrow, goddamn flesh bags. But here's the thing that blows my mind is that Maverick, because, you know, because uh, Kane's, you know, chewing him out and he's like, you might have bought your team a couple more months, 
But sooner or later, you know, it's going to catch up with him. And I'm like, hold the phone here. So he steals a plane. And you just because he hits Mach 10, you didn't make a promise to him. He's not a kid with a birthday wish. Like, you can you can say, hey, that doesn't count. Or also, you know, I had my fingers crossed or something. Like, I don't have to give you a day of extra time on this. You stole a plane. Well, I think with the project, it's he was shutting it down because with the excuse of saying, like, look, it's not progressing the way we want. But the fact that it did progress the way they want, now he's like, well, I can't obviously shut it down as much, even though it kind of is shut down because uh, Tom Cruise crashed the fucking plane. By Tom Cruise, I mean Tom Cruise. No, I mean Maverick. So Maverick meets with Admiral Bo Cyclone Simpson, played by John Hamm, and Admiral Solomon Warlock Bates, played by Charles Parnell. Cyclone has no respect for how Maverick has made a career of coasting on past achievements, but he has so much respect for Admiral Kazansky played later by Val Kilmer, that he has no choice but to let Maverick teach a new group of pilots to insubordinate. Admiral Kazansky, is that Iceman from the Top Gun movie? That's going to be Iceman. That was my favorite part of the original Top Gun. It was like, everybody gets called by their cool names, Goose, Maverick, and Maverick refuses to call him Iceman. He just calls him Kazansky every time. I was like, oh, I'm glad to see we're calling him Kazansky forever now. It's great. You know, I rented this movie on Amazon, uh, and they had one of those uh, like little x-ray fun facts things. And what popped up, it was like, you know, well, when this movie was made, the uh, the head of the Pacific Fleet or whatever was an old fighter pilot. So that's actually, you know, it was like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> it's fine to make him. <laughs> Ooh. You know, when they announced that Iceman was like a big wig at the Navy, I wasn't like, oh, prove it. I didn't yell that at my TV. Uh, so when Maverick gets to San Diego, the you know lower third says, San Diego, Fighter Town, USA. Okay, I guess. Is that what you think? I think of the zoo, David. <laughs> they have a famous zoo there. And Comic-Con International. I didn't know it was Fighter Town USA still. But yes, Maverick arrives there and he arrives at an exhibit of set photographs from Top Gun because there's pictures recapping the first uh, movie. And he gets to meet here with Cyclone and Warlock. Why we all use cool nicknames, I don't know, but I love it. But here there's a moment, and this was also in the trailer, where he, where Maverick says, like, thank you for the invitation. And Warlock says, uh, they're called Orders, Maverick, which, you know, is funny. And you see a little bit of like a shit-eating grin here that that did take me back a little bit to the Top Gun character, which is kind of funny to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, they, that's Maverick for you. She didn't grin. Warlock is is pretty good at delivering these very dry, funny lines, and he gets another good one in, later in the film. You know, they're giving Maverick a sense of what the mission needs to be that they're training, and Maverick misunderstands. He thinks he's leading the the uh, the crew, and they're like, no, 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 we just want you to teach. But, you know, when they're going over the the plan you know i guess essentially so there's a base that's uh being built that's uh you know against regulations and so they're concerned about its you know its nuclear capabilities or weapons capabilities so they need to destroy it they don't assign a country or nationality or any sort of anything to this they did david they said it was a rogue operator you know what that means no it means it doesn't mean anything david it means that they did not want to do those things yeah you know i'm of i'm of two minds about it on the one hand like I, I have an appreciation for that because, yeah, like, who wants to get bogged down with politics? This is a populist movie. We just want to get as many people in here as possible. I don't want to, you know, make this about one thing or another or get caught in any controversy. But then at the same time, it's a little too convenient because, you know, we kind of need to recognize that there are people on the other side of these missions. And I think it's a little too convenient to just say, a base. But... I'll let the movie have it. Look, I'm almost happy for it because this is a weird movie tonally. Because, yeah, it does at the end of the movie feel like a two and a half hour ad for the Navy. But at the same time, it was a Navy that, as we'll see later on, more than happy to sacrifice its own soldiers without telling them. It's interesting. And I know we we kind of 
jumped all over RRR for the same kind of thing. But yeah, here's another thing though. They're showing this presentation, David, uh, that describes the mission to Maverick. And this presentation's amazing. Like wh- whoever made this thing is in the top gun for presentations because it was, it was, the graphics were great. The, uh, it was very easy to follow. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was top shelf. It was Hollywood quality. It was really well done. Yeah. Uh, but the mission here, when they're explaining it, why is John Hamm Cyclone so shitty to Tom Cruise? He's like, your reputation precedes you. And Maverick is like, thank you. And he's like, it's not a compliment. It's almost like, uh, did he have sex with your mom or something back in the day? It just, it would, it seemed real personal. Well, you know, I get the sense that, you know, if Maverick is pulling stunts like stealing top secret aircraft for his own personal goals, and if he's been doing that and getting bailed out for 30 plus years while other people have to watch it, I bet he'd be a little pissed off at some point. I mean, he said, like, look, you're not my not my choice. You're not my top three choice. You weren't even my backup choice. Uh, I was going to go with someone else, but uh, Admiral Kazansky said to use you. And you're being a real bitch about it, Cyclone. Which, here's the thing. Uh, you're in the Navy. You're supposed to be taking, like, this is not the first time you've gotten an order. You know, War- Warlock just said to Maverick, they're called orders. So why are you complaining? I don't know. He's a little too shitty right away. Also, we see Maverick texting Admiral Kazansky, Iceman. And he's in the chat, at least a little like text window, whatever phone he's got, as just Ice. Do you think in Maverick's phone, David, he's just listed as Ice? Or do you think he's listed as first name Ice, last name Man? First name Ice, last name Man. I love it. So let's head to a nearby bar that we learn is now run by one of Maverick's former girlfriends, Penny, played by the photogenic Jennifer Connelly. We get some backstory into Maverick's history with this new character, and then here come 12 new characters. All pilots in the Top Gun program, but we'll only need to know about six of them, including hotshot pilot Hangman, played by Everybody Wants Some's Glenn Powell. Yay! Uh, Then from across the room, our eyes meet with Rooster, played by Miles Teller, who is Maverick's old dead pal Goose's son. And you can tell because they have the same mustache. Maverick gets shaken down for hundreds of dollars in drinks before getting tossed out to stare longingly at Rooster through the window, Mac Blake, this entire chunk of movie can go out the window as well. This is probably my least favorite part of the movie because there was a lot of like, what kind of moments in here? Something we forgot to mention, when they showed the lineup of former Top Gun students that are being recalled for this mission, Cyclone was like, you got a problem with this roster? And Maverick's like, you fucking know I do because Rooster's in there. He's Goose's son and I tried to get him bounced out of active combat duty because I already got his dad killed. He blames himself for that still. I don't want to get him killed. I'll have to answer to Meg Ryan, who is oddly not in this movie at all, where it seems like she could have been. But yeah, this this chunk of this movie, I, I don't know. Why, why did you not like it, David? It's unnecessary. It's unnecessarily long, I guess, maybe, because there are some things that you that you need for later in the movie. You know, you need to introduce these characters at some point. You, mm-hmm. need, you need Maverick to have an uncomfortable introduction or, you know, to have an uncomfortable encounter with Rooster. You need all of these things. I don't know if you need Penny, period, at all. I don't know if you need... The amount of time we spend with Great Balls of Fire, there's a lot of stuff that just, it feels so superfluous, but it also feels like they're following the Titanic playbook of pad the first half with romance, and then you can go crazy with the action in the second half. I also think this movie should not have Jennifer Connelly in it, but maybe for a different reason. Because David, it seems like every time I see Jennifer Connelly in a movie, she's somehow more attractive. And I feel like we're about four movies away from when I look at her, my eyes will start to bleed. You know what I mean? Just like I can't, humans can't physically handle it. It's dangerous at this point. Think of everyone else. Also, I just want to pass this theory that her and Jared Leto are, are slowly looking the exact same. I don't know how that's happening, but it is. But yeah, Penny the bartender, by the way, is very up on Navy history because she's like, Mav, I didn't think I'd see you here. And then like goes over his career highlights. And I was like, damn, is there a blog that you've been following? 
I figure that Maverick is of such legend that she probably hears the tale of Maverick five times a week and she it's burned into her brain by now. It's like, oh, I wish these people would talk about something else. So at some point she rings this bell and everyone in the bar goes nuts and Maverick's like, what'd you ring the bell for? And she points to a sign that says, if you disrespect the Navy or woman or put a cell phone on my bar, you have to buy a round. Which here's the thing, he really doesn't have to buy a round. That's a sign, not a cop. You know what I mean? And the first time I watched this movie, I was like, why is he going through with all these things? Now watching it later, it's like because a pretty lady is talking to him. He's basically like playing by her rules to ingratiate himself to her. And and I think maybe it works. I don't know. You know, I think talking about this movie unlocks the movie better than the movie itself does. Because, you know, throughout this movie, or at least throughout the first half, he struggles with interactions with people. Because he's so... You know, I get I get the sense that one of the one of his character or, or his character arc is that he has to overcome his he has to think about somebody else for once because mm-hmm. uh, he's spent his entire life thinking about himself, thinking about his career and his, and what he wants, regardless of what the Navy wants him to do, regardless of what a love interest or anybody else wants him to do. So his development or part of his development is learning how to interact with people. So yeah, I think he's just like, all right, the sign told me to okay, I'll just do it, whatever. But then the Top Gun recruits come in, and it really is a meeting of the pissing contest gang because all this dialogue is just people one-upping each other, and it's exhausting so fast. So, Glenn Powell, you you like this dude? I do. I'm a huge fan of Everybody Wants Some. I've always wanted success for a, a lot of the members of that cast, and he he's dynamite in this movie. I, I think he's fantastic. I wish there was more of him in this movie. His role in this movie, Hangman, he's basically kind of like this alpha child of Iceman and Maverick from the first movie. He's your cocksure uh, pilot who has the skills to back it up. And of course, he's so cocksure that he's kind of a, a dick to everyone. And they're kind of going around being dicks to each other, playing pool and making fun of each other's names. We also meet a dude named uh, Bob, whose codename is Bob. Like he doesn't even think of one, which I appreciate. And then we also meet uh, the only uh, female member of the squad, I believe, is Phoenix. And at some point, Rooster walks in. And like, oh, Rooster, surprised to see you here. And Hangman's being a dick, right? And he says something, and and Rooster kind of gives an odd response. Hangman, the only place you'll lead anyone is an early grave. An early grave? Dude, we're just talking, okay? Calm the fuck down. We're just shit-talking and busted bees. Next thing you know, you're like, you're going to get someone killed. Whoa! Easy on the Amstel lights, you know what I mean? Jeepers. Here's the thing about Miles Teller. Overall, how do you think he did in this movie? What's your take on Miles Teller? I liked him in this movie. I generally like him overall. There's something about him I find charming. And I can't put my finger on it. I don't know. But he works in this movie for me. He you know, he gets better as the movie goes on, in my estimation. Why? Why, why do you bring him up? Well, I liked him in a couple things I saw him in, including Whiplash. And then I saw Too Old to Die Young. I watched all 10 hours of that, the Nicholas Winding Refn or Winding Refn, I don't know how you say it, maxi-series on Amazon Prime that they tried to bury. And I fucking hated that thing that I'm still mad at Miles Teller for it. Which is, it was, it was, it was written by Ed Brubaker, too, a comics writer I love. So it just, and look, I liked Drive, too. And I, I wanted to like it, but I hated it so much that when I saw Miles Teller in this, I'm like, I wanted my money back that I didn't spend because it was a streaming release. So I liked him in this movie, and I'll say... He's risen my esteem, not to where I'm necessarily a fan of him, but then I'm to where the next thing I see him in, I'll be like, all right, what do you got? Whereas when he walked in here, I was like, this fucker. Like, I was just so mad. Well, you know, I've got a feeling that uh, for the next inventory episode, I'm going to be talking about that Godfather series that he did on Paramount. Oh, was that good? I think that's, uh, I don't know. I haven't seen it, but you know, 
mm. while we're talking about Miles Teller, it's like I did want to find out how that worked out. So I think I might end up watching that one. I wanted to see that too. All right, maybe if I watch it and he's good in that, maybe we'll bring him back up to a level playing field. But David, here's the thing with sequels, right? What do you got to do with a sequel? You got to hit some of the first beats of a movie, but then you also got to zig where the original movie zagged. Uh, you got to do some sort of surprising takes on it. So one of the uh, key moments of the first movie, I guess, is the fact that uh, Rooster's dad, Goose, plays great balls of fire on a piano. You know, the the Top Gun kids here that you know, are having their fun little party. And so like, let's kick it up a notch. And so they pull the plug in the jukebox, which was playing Slow Ride. And as soon as that uh, song cuts out, everyone in this bar goes, oh, which got a fuck. I didn't know we loved that song so much. And then Goose gets on the piano and he starts playing Great Balls of Fire, just like his dad. This song's very old. Yes. No one knows it anymore. The only way you would know this song is if you remember it from the first Top Gun movie. Yeah. Gather around, everybody. Here's a song my dad taught me. And that's the tricky gambit of pulling a nostalgia move with a movie like this because, you know, it's been 30 years. You know, when Great Balls of Fire, when you use that for the first Top Gun, there's like a 26-year gap between when the song came out and when the movie comes out. So if you were to do that now... Then is Rooster walking into like my own worst enemy by lit like I mean I look I, there's some Jerry Lee Lewis stuff that's definitely st- I mean like a whole lot of shaking going on I feel like people probably still know Jerry Lee Lewis but the other thing about Jerry Lee Lewis is didn't uh, didn't he marry his like underage cousin Yeah when she was 14 Yeah so why don't we go ahead and just like uh, play a little R Kelly on the piano at this point because <laughs> <laughs> for me Jerry Lee Lewis is not fun anymore when I found that out So the next day the pilot who needs no introduction introduces himself to Top Gun the next generation Maverick is a follower of the Dead Pilot Society teaching method because it's time to put your textbooks in the trash Maverick tells them to forget everything they've learned and to do without thinking and to show them what they've learned so far but need to unlearn by taking to the skies. It's an action set piece we'll call Maverick's Educational Murder Spree. Maverick takes the young pilots to school by downing them and clowning them. Maverick and Rooster also end up in a dogfight instead of just, I don't know, going to therapy. So Maverick addresses the Top Gun kids here, and he does so in front of a giant American flag, which I guess they just have in the hangar. Like, it just seems like, don't you guys have a classroom? It's like, no, 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 class outside today, lower the giant American flag. I want to see the shot of the janitor, like, er, 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 doing that thing. And then also, was the trash can there? Or was Maverick like, let me, hey, put a trash can there because I'm going to throw away the textbooks and they're just going to eat it up or whatever. Also, uh, guess who's there? Hondo, Maverick's buddy from the Dark Star experimental plane operation. I guess he also got sent to Top Gun. I don't even know what he does. But there he is. He's, he's Maverick's best friend. Also, these dudes are so excited about this mission, right? Which we've already kind of established is maybe a suicide mission. But they're like, they're just like, just, oh, I can't wait to train for it. I'm going to be the I'm going to be the fastest and best person to, to die on this suicide <laughs> mission. They love it. Uh, but yeah, then we get them up there. We're, we're training. What do you what? How do you feel about this? Uh, this dog fighting lesson scene? I was underwhelmed by it, and I think I'm the problem with this. This movie loves its cockpit shots. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it does a lot of footage in the air, and I get the sense that that's real footage that they took while flying, and that's awesome for them. But like for me, what difference does it make? I, and that's sort of where I am with like dog fighting scenes. At least in the first half of this movie. The second half, the dogfighting gets exponentially better. But for dogfighting scenes in general, I kind of just have to take the movie's word for it. Like, hey, whoa, look out over there. Oh, wow. Like, okay, I, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I'm right there with you. But I thought the movie actually did a pretty good job. And I think it does it throughout. 
if people feel that it's a little clunky, I can see that. I can see if someone thinks it's a little clunky because yeah, the way that they, you know, let you follow along with the story of these dogfighting scenes, the way you're able to sort of like, you know, follow what's going on is through the character dialogue of being like, he's over there. We need to do this. Look, overhead, he's on our six. Here comes Maverick. But, you know, so you are kind of taking their word for it. But I don't know, because it feels like legitimate fighter pilot talk, and this is coming from someone who has, you know, how would I know a legitimate fighter pilot? I would not. But it felt uh, natural enough for me to follow what's going on. I was comfortable doing that. See, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's funny to watch us run perpendicular with each other because for me, they're talking so much of their own language that I'm just like, you guys have fun. I'll see you when you land. Like, I, I don't, I can't latch on to it. And that, again, that's probably my failing. And there's some moment here where Hangman, you know, leaves his wingman to go pursue Maverick in this exercise. And Phoenix is like, yeah, now we know why we call him Hangman. It's because he always leaves you hanging. And it's like, I, I think people get to choose their own nicknames. <laughs> like, maybe that's why <laughs> a joke you made, but that's, he probably calls himself Hangman because it sounds cool. So, so we're doing the training and like Maverick is teaching so many good lessons in how to get killed by Maverick. And he, he pulls off the Cobra maneuver, which if you're a fan of the first Top Gun, you remember that's how he killed the Ruskies. This air show maneuver. Because like I had to go do some research for this and be like, all right, what is doable? What's not doable in this movie? It, at least in the first Top Gun, it, that felt like the move that only he knew. Like no one else knew how to, whoop, you know, appear behind somebody. So to find out that, like, that's only done in air shows, I was like, okay, maybe I shouldn't have looked that up. Yeah, that kind of same energy carried over to the argument part of the scene, the argument between Rooster and, and Maverick when they're kind of going at it while pulling off some insane coordinated fighting. It kind of reminded me of the scene from The Other Guys where Mark Wahlberg's character, in order to show someone up, decided to uh, be really good at ballet. Like, I'll show you so stupid. I'll make funny by doing some ballet. Oh, are those two mad at each other or are they in love? Because that kind of coordination is, is insane. <laughs> Maverick gets a dressing down from Admiral Cyclone because, damn it, they crossed the hard deck when Maverick knows it's set at 5,000 feet. After Maverick is given a stern warning, it's off to Penny's bar to drop off his shakedown money. He and Penny also go sailing. Yeah, so this hard deck bit. Uh, so, you know, there's, they set an imaginary level at, hey, you can't go above here, you can't go below here. These are going to be the training parameters. If you go too high, you'll get shot down if you go too, you know, that kind yeah, of Yeah, because they're just training. They don't want the ground to be the ground because then you might crash into it. So they'll set the imaginary ground at 5,000 feet. Because Cyclone's like, okay, you have less than three weeks to teach him how to fight as a team and how to strike the target. And the Maverick says, and how to come home. Cyclone's like, um, about that. How to come home, right? And he's like, every mission has its risks. Meaning like, look, I don't think this is a come home mission and I don't give a shit. So it's definitely the moment where he's like, look, you're trying to train these dudes to hit this uh, target. The come home part, that's your bag, Maverick. I just want him to carry off this mission. So it's definitely like, here is the difference between Cyclone and Maverick. Cyclone wants this thing done. Maverick wants this thing done and also these dudes to come home safely, which is not necessarily the priority of the Navy. When I was watching this movie with my feral wife, there is, I think... A part later on in the movie where I was like, why don't they just send drones if this is so dangerous? And then and my fair wife goes, because then there wouldn't be a movie. Shut up. Uh, that's a paraphrase. But David, I did wonder that. And earlier in the movie, when they're describing the mission, they say something like, oh, this would be a perfect mission for this other kind of fighter jet. But this area has like GPS jamming. And so we can't use it 
we have to use the F-18 instead, which is not an ideal airplane for this mission. So I think the reason the movie gives at least the fact they can't use drones is because of this GPS jamming. That is what I'm going to assume and move forward. Because if you don't, every five minutes, you're going to be like, just use a drone. Just use a drone. Yeah, you know, I, I'm having a little fun with it. I'm willing to buy the conceit of this movie. If there's a reason why you need to do it, that's fine. But then afterwards, yeah, Maverick does go sailing with Penny. And they go sailing on this boat in very dangerous waters. And this boat does have a comically large steering wheel. And I had to say, I liked the sailing scene, David. Well, Mac, I did not so much. You know, uh, again, I'm willing to give the movie... The benefit of the doubt, you know, it's trying to establish that, you know, Maverick might be perfect in the air. He might be, he might know exactly what to do in a plane. But once you get him out of that plane, he's, he's clumsy. He's awkward. He doesn't know what he's doing. He, he's a human when you get him out of the plane. But even here, you know, he's having a hard time steering the boat, which, oh, you know, we, we all would. But his response is, I don't sail boats. I land on them. This is an Oscar nominated screenplay, Mac. Like, I'm really trying not to be shitty about the Academy Awards process. I, you know, it is what it is. But Yipers, Mel Kuypers, like this line <laughs> in an, no, thank you. I like that line. And I like that. I thought it was funny, the idea that you have a Navy dude who does know how to sail. Because he is a pilot, even though he's in the Navy. She's like, you know, uh, fasten the jib or whatever. Like, the fuck's a jib? Like, you know, or I don't even remember what the nautical term was. But the fact that he is in the Navy and does know how to does not know how to sail uh, I, I thought that was funny. That line did not bother me. And also, you know, it, it sets up the fact that Penny is also a, a work hard, play hard kind of person, which, you know, she's a thrill seeker. And then maybe she's a good fit for Maverick. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I don't know. But after their friend date, Penny's walking in and Maverick's like, that was fun or something. And she's like, yeah, good night, Pete. And then after she, you know, sort of like being too cool, but after she closes the door, she like pauses and just, you could hear the kersploosh <laughs> because she's like, oh no, what am I doing? I'm falling for Maverick again. Come on, Penny. Her thighs hurt from having to keep them closed all day. Why am I finding this attractive age appropriate man who's in amazing shape and super personable? Why do I find him so attractive? God damn it. So now the training gets serious. Maverick informs Top Gun that in order to succeed in this mission, they will need to successfully execute the third act of Star Wars. There's also a fun little virtual obstacle course for the pilots to run. The training run doesn't go well and tensions flare between Rooster and the ever-confident Hangman. With training not going well, Iceman summons Maverick to his home for a chat. Yes, it turns out the target they have to strike is like a tiny little box. And because they don't have GPS, the way the mission has to be done is you need one plane to target it with a target laser, and a second plane to launch a missile in this very small little target. And you got to do it in a very quick window. This mission is tough. This mission is tough. I, you know, I had a little fun with the, with the synopsis here. You know, it is the third act of Star Wars. I don't mind. You know, it is a successful play in the playbook. They pull it off effectively when we get to it. No, I'm completely fine with this. So they're doing more training and the, the, the team is having a hard time communicating. Maverick at one point is like, why did you fail in the mission? And so someone tries to give an answer and Maverick comes back with, how about an excuse that their family will accept at the funeral? Because he's saying, Hey, you know, this is training, but if you make this kind of mistake out there in the mission, your partner will die. And this is the Maverick I want. You know, if you're going to have a cocksure character, if you're going to have a character who, who joking aside, who is for the most part infallible, you know, he, he it's bullseye after bullseye in life then have him be a shit to these students. Have a little bit of tough love. 
and he doesn't want to do the tough love because he genuinely loves Rooster. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, again, a choose your own adventure that the movie chose something else that I would have. David mentioning Star Wars uh, does remind me of my favorite Star Wars quote, underrated Star Wars quote, where when they're describing the mission and they're like, oh, you got to fire the Death Star, this very small part. And one of the uh, uh, rebel pilots goes, that's impossible. And Luke goes, it's not impossible. I used to bullseye womp rats in my T-16 back home. They're not much bigger than two meters. Imagine if you're giving a military briefing and like, you got to hit this target. And he's like, two meters, that's impossible. And some guy was like, that ain't impossible. I used to shoot rats at the dump back at home. <laughs> and they ain't much bigger than that. He'll be like, shut your redneck ass up. <laughs> like, I just, oh, Luke Skywalker, you fucking hick. People don't talk about the fact that he was just some backwoods dummy enough. Something I did like about this scene, though, is that Maverick is awkward as a teacher. It, it is, I think they do a good job putting that awkwardness in there because, yeah, as a fighter pilot, you know, he's cool under pressure, but as a teacher, he is kind of bad at it. He's not, he's not bad at it, but he's just, he struggles at times. And it, it, that awkwardness there, it's interesting to see an awkward Tom Cruise character. And so he gets a text, you know, um, he's had a rough day. The training didn't go well. He's, you know, sitting around some pilot's lounge. And he gets a text from Iceman. Iceman's like, I need to talk to you. Maverick says, it's not a good time. And Iceman says, I'm not asking. So we go to Iceman's house, played by Val Kilmer. And uh, what did you think about this scene, Mac? The first time I saw it, I did not give a shit. I mean, I know that Val Kilmer is having some health struggles. And so the fact that we are seeing him play Iceman, who's also having some uh, health struggles, the fact that both characters are having something that's affecting their ability to speak, I don't know if we're supposed to separate it, but I can't. And so you're, you kind of is like, hey, audience, how do you feel about seeing Val Kilmer get old and uh, in, in poor health? And it just, it's, it's interesting because the same way that I had a hard time connecting the 2022 Tom Cruise Maverick character to the 80s one, I had a harder time connecting the Val Kilmer one. Maybe because, I mean, Val Kilmer as Iceman, pretty iconic, but ever since then I've seen Val Kilmer play all these other roles I don't view him as an Iceman-style character. And so seeing older Val Kilmer now, I mean, I was happy to see him and everything, but it, if the movie wants me to be like, look, it's old Iceman, I couldn't do that. All I saw was, look, it's, it's old Val Kilmer. I'm of two minds about it, because on, on the one hand, you know, trying to give the movie the benefit of the doubt, one, it's playing on nostalgia, hey, we're bringing back all your old pals, that sort of thing. But also, you know, one of the themes of this movie is Maverick's struggle with time. From, from running the course to, you know, the, the inevitable death that comes for us all. So, you know, to see his friend, to see, his, you know, his former wingman in poor health is a reminder that time is fleeting, is a reminder that, you know, uh, his end will be near eventually too. But by actually bringing Val Kilmer in here, who does have health issues of his own, and to write a character who's just going to end up dying a few scenes later, sorry, we'll get to it in a little bit, it feels a little exploitative to me. It left a bad taste in my mouth, and maybe maybe I'm just not in the right frame of mind for this movie in general, and I'm just picking it apart. But, like, I don't know. It, it, it I don't know. I mean, I, I feel that exploitative thing. That, that tracks a little bit. But the thing is, is, like, you know, Val Kilmer's not an idiot. He signed up for this role. And I think, you know, one could argue that it may have appealed to him for that very reason, that it, he was able to sort of connect it. I don't know. But the second time I watched the scene, it definitely, I connected with it more. And I left... Feeling that it was a great scene. Like I, the the relationship here, especially when they're talking about loss and when Iceman, who, you know, can't speak, he using his, well, he can speak actually. I think I read somewhere that they, that was like a digital job. They were able to like recreate Val Kilmer's voice or something like that. 
but he has trouble speaking. The character, that is. Oh, my God. Could you follow that audience? I hope so. So he types out, it's time to let go, or something along those lines. And Maverick starts to get choked up. And this conversation about Rooster, and he's like, you know, if I... Because he kind of sees himself as, you know, I don't... I wouldn't say his surrogate father, because it, it's, it sounds like he was busy with a naval career, but just i don't know all his, all his emotions here with with rooster it went a little deeper than you know maybe we we knew up until this point and so yeah even though it's hard for me to connect with val kilmer as iceman uh or that original iceman character i second viewing i was i was into it and yeah i, I thought this was a great scene or an effective scene i'll say that yes but mac time is ticking on training for the mission but cyclone is concerned that maverick and his students are wasting time playing a sexy game of dogfight football. Penny was watching from a distance, and coincidentally, now she's really horny. She and Maverick go back to her place, have sex without breaking a sweat, and then have a cute moment where Maverick sneaks out the window like he's a teenager instead of a man in his mid-50s. Dogfight football, Mac. I don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> They're like, offense, defense. It's like, okay, great. It doesn't make sense. Couldn't you have just gone back and played volleyball? I mean, because look, this was another example of them trying to hit the beat from the first movie where we see uh, all our, our Top Gun studs uh, flexing and you know oiled up and playing volleyball and hanging with the boys. But instead, we get you know some super muscly dudes, including a super ripped Miles Teller, which was confusing to see. But yeah, they're, all, they're playing a game that uh, I, you know, I, I guess makes sense to someone, but did not make sense to me. So this just felt like kind of, a, I, I mean, it was still fun. But it, it felt cheesy to me, which I guess maybe it was supposed to. So, you know what? Have your fun. Have your fun. Yeah, I, I'm okay with it. Like, you know, I, I'm taking a piss. But, you know, it's like dogfight football was a lot like dogfight action where I'm just, again, I'm taking your word for it. If you're having fun, God bless you. My favorite part of this whole chunk, though, is Bob, played by Lewis Pullman. He's supposed to be like the dorky one of the group, I guess. So they put him in a shirt. You know, because that's very funny. But also, you know there's a body under there. You know they put that shirt on under <laughs> false pretenses. Well, of course, because he's Bill Pullman's son. He's got those Pullman genetics. But David, the Maverick hooking up with Penny. Look, it was bound to happen. Talk about a missed opportunity to hit the same beat of the movie. They fuck David and there's no music. There's no, don't take my breath away. Which, look, I don't know if you can hit the heights of that you know, sexy synth that the band Berlin hit with that that song. But the fact that they didn't even try, I, that just, that, that bummed me out. It would have been nice to see a soundtrack accompaniment to this movie. And I'm sure there actually probably is. I'm just out of touch with the way record sales go. But like, I don't know. I long for the days of soundtracks accompanying movies. And I think this this actually had the Lady Gaga song and had a bunch of other stuff. So maybe I'm wrong. But yeah, they didn't even try to kind of pump up the uh, eroticness of the scene. I mean, the first Top Gun was like, you know, what, PG or PG-13? It wasn't uh, too steamy, but it was also steamy. And they just, they, I don't know, maybe maybe Tom Cruise and David Miscavige was like, you cannot have sex with Jennifer Connelly even in a movie or something. <laughs> I don't know, but they didn't even try. But then Penny's daughter comes home and she's like, look, Maverick, I can't, I need to send an example here for my daughter to not hook up with her old shitty ex-boyfriends. So instead of out the door, out the window, you have to jump. And uh, we get a shot here, David, that startled me. I don't know if it startled you as well. It startled me too. So Maverick's getting ready to climb out the window. He's like, you know, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. He's, you know, trying to say goodbye in a very romantic way. And Penny's had enough. She's like, oh, you got to hurry up and go. So she gives him a little shove out the window. And then the movie cuts to, it's a, it's a wide shot of like kind of the alley or whatever, or, you know, the outside. And you just see a jacket plummet from the window and just like peanuts fall onto the ground. 
And I initially thought it was Maverick, and I LOL'd. That was so great, Mac. <laughs> yeah, I, the same boat. They, he, he, you know, he gets pushed out the window, and they cut to where you think you will see him land. But instead, <laughs> you see this jacket just crump onto the ground. I was like, Jesus! Like, because, yeah, I thought it was Maverick just falling into a fucking heap. But no, it was his jacket. And down comes Maverick next. But then what does Maverick see in the window? Penny's daughter. Penny's daughter sees Maverick after they just hooked up. And she's like, don't break my mom's heart again, Mav. And he was like, your, your mom's a beautiful one. No, I think he just leaves. I don't remember what happens. This scene is cute. But I think it belongs in a different movie. I'm nitpicking this movie too much. I don't care anymore. I'm going to go with it. But like, this feels like it belongs in a Top Gun where Maverick has become old and crusty. And he needs to find his mojo. He needs to become the guy he used to be in order to succeed. And this feels like this date slash sex sequence would have been a good opening to getting that old Maverick back. But he's been the old Maverick this whole time. So it kind of landed flat. But uh-oh. Turns out the base they're supposed to bomb is ahead of schedule. So we're moving the mission up by a week. Maverick goes over new details of the mission. And then it's back into the planes for a dress rehearsal. It's an action set piece we'll call parking lot to the danger zone because they're not they're not the highway yet, David. They're just it's like when you learn to drive, you my dad taught me in a parking lot. That's why because not they're not ready to go on the highway yet. That's that's why we'll call that action seat action set piece that. You're so clever. <laughs> Practice does not go well for Coyote, played by Greg Tarzan Davis, who goes into G Lock and Bob and Phoenix, Phoenix played by Monica Barbaro, who end up getting bird struck. Uh, things are not going well for Maverick. Also, Iceman dies. Yeah, this uh, practice sucks because Maverick is like, hey, I'm, I'm in this practice too. I'm going to pretend to be a bad guy. And he's there. He's got front row seats to watch his crew uh, fuck up and almost die. And like, you know, again, this will be the joke that we hit quite a few times throughout this movie. G-Lock, you know, it can't be good for you. Uh, so maybe don't put pilots through that. Perhaps some sort of unmanned mission. Like, I'm only seeing indications of why we should be going unmanned. Again, if the conceit of the movie is they can't, I get it, I get it, I get it. But let's talk long-term here. Stuff like this is going to happen on the next mission and less consequential missions too. But Iceman's failing health finally fails and then we get an emotional funeral scene and then after that, it is back to work at the military base. But David, it's not uh, business as usual because now that Admiral Kazansky's out of the way, Cyclone's in charge. It's, it's a shame Maverick can no longer fail up. So Cyclone is taking over Top Gun and Maverick is out of the Navy. Maverick retaliates against this unfairness by stealing another plane in an action set piece we'll call Maverick's Run. Maverick runs the training course to perfection, proving that the Top Gun kids do have a shot at living through the mission. After a brief brush with consequences, Maverick is appointed team leader to run the mission. Good for him. So Cyclone tells Maverick, he's like, look, you've had your fun, but uh, you're, you know, your your advocate here, because Admiral Kazansky, seeing as how he's no longer alive. He's the only guy protecting you. I don't want you here, and you don't want to be here, so get out of here. Once this happens, Cyclone basically like drops all pretense to try and keep these people alive. Because the part of the parameters on this training missions that uh, Maverick said was like, all right, you need to be able to hit the target at this point in time and then get out of there if you have a hope of escaping the enemy's SAMs or surface-to-air missiles. Now, when Cyclone takes over, he's like, hey, don't worry about that time anymore, because you guys can do it at this time, because I don't really think anyone's going to make it out of there alive. While this is going on, Maverick, to prove that it can, this, this mission is not crazy, decides to, yes, steal a, an, uh, a U.S. aircraft and fly this practice mission on his own 
which yeah, if some U.S. Um, like other plane would have shot him down, it's, they would have been perfectly within their rights because all they know is this, this dude went rogue and stole an airplane. But after Maverick gets let go, he goes to the bar and talks to Penny, and Penny's like, I heard what happened. Which again, Penny, strangely like up to date on all goings on with this, I think, a, a secret mission. I think it's what it's supposed to be. But Penny, all-knowing, all all-seeing, uh, she's got a, she's like uh, that uh, dude from uh, Game of Thrones, that weird creepy, the eunuch guy, the master of whispers. I think Varric. We'll never, we'll never know, David. But yeah, you know, so word gets around to Penny because she's got the bartender's ear. She hears everything. And she's trying to pump Maverick up and she's like, no, those are your pilots. You need to fight for them because they'd fight for you. And I'm like, you know, if he were competent at his job, they could have been his pilots. If he had shown prowess in being a teacher, if he had shown the ability to teach, I would buy that he has some claim to those pilots. But like Cyclone's right. He never wanted to be there. He's not particularly good at connecting with these students yet or ever. So yeah, I'm, I'm okay with the with beating it. Varys. His name was Varys, David. <laughs> I think that's what we all were waiting for. Is <laughs> me to get that character's name correct. David, beating it means opening up these pilots to a suicide mission, pretty much giving up on them, which Maverick refuses to do. And the way he refuses to do this is by running this training mission himself. Now, David, this to me is the most exciting part of this movie. For some reason, like Maverick being like, fine, fuck it. I will show you how it's done. Like when they realize that Maverick is going on this mission because they can kind of track him on this board, uh, everyone shuts up. Like everyone in the training room, including you know Cyclone, because this moment, what's it going to be like? Oh, get him out of there! Because no one's going to get him out of there. So he actually like you know Cyclone shuts the fuck up and he sits there and he watches Maverick pull this thing off and he's like you know he's hitting these turns, he's making the time. And there's the moment where he's got to like launch that impossible shot without. He doesn't even have the benefit of a uh, like a laser guided uh, like you know the other plane, the wingman or whatever, targeting it with the laser guiding system. He just hits this impossible like Steph Curry style three from down like you know from the other end of the you know other end of the court. And David, I I marked out when I was watching this with Master Pancake making fun of it. I marked out again. Seriously, when he hits that shot, it's fucking Ginobili. Like it just it's God, it's good. It it's just a dude being like, look. I mean, I know the point was to be like, this mission is achievable. You need to let these people try. Do not give up on them. Do not just put them as like, you know, you know, uh, sacrifices or what. Do not sacrifice them. However, it's also being like, yeah, Maverick is this fucking good. I, I loved it. Cool. It was good. It was a fun sequence. I enjoyed it. And so then after he does it, he gets called back into Cyclone's office. And Cyclone's like, what the fuck do I do now? Because, yeah, I could court martial you yesterday for all these things you did. My God, man. But however, uh, do I have to now risk my career to let you lead this mission? And Tom Cruise is like, uh, sir. And then Warlock again from downtown goes, I think the Admiral is asking a rhetorical question, Captain. Like, shut the fuck up. But he says it in such a dry way. Warlock again, he might be, he's not the MVP of this movie, but he's like, he's the glue guy. <laughs> he makes it work. Six man of the year. I was going to say he's more of a Boris Diaw character. Uh, who uh, Was he never six man of the year? Well, he didn't. No, he filled up. I think he was most improved player at some point. He doesn't fill up a staff sheet, but he, he makes a team a championship team. So Maverick picks his team. He'll lead team one with Phoenix and Bob. And Maverick chooses Rooster to lead a team of payback and fanboy. Truly, who cares who they are at this point? Much to the surprise of Hangman and Rooster. We get one more mission recap and a give him hell from Hangman. And then it's on to the mission. Mm-hmm. So we see Hangman here again. He is... By our estimation, from what we've seen, the best at Top Gun school 
So it is a little, you know, okay, you're going to pick Rooster instead. So my question to you, Mac, is in terms of this movie, in terms of, or I guess in terms of the characters, in terms of uh, Maverick and, and more specifically Rooster, what purpose does Hangman serve? That is an interesting question. I think Hangman is there, the way that Rooster is kind of like a surrogate son for Maverick, like in a way, like he's, you know, he's not directly like his son, but he, you know, Maverick is looking at him like he's family. Hangman is kind of like Maverick Jr. Like he is the cocky guy who is the best. And he is there to kind of fill that role that, again, like a combined Maverick and Iceman would have filled in the first Top Gun movie. But I, I don't know. I mean, that's just my take on it. What do you think is, what role do you think Hangman serves? I don't, I don't know. I, I wish I did know because, you know, he's not the villain of this movie, not by a long shot. I think the movie wants to kind of one for one this, where Rooster is the Maverick as Hangman is to Iceman, where they're going to be the rivals. They're going to be pushing each other. But I never really get the sense. The give him hell that Hangman gives is the first indication that they are starting to bond. If it's me doing punch-ups, I would have liked to have at least seen them have kind of an iron sharpens iron moment where, hey man, you are the best. I want to be the best. I'm willing to put my ego aside. I'm willing to put our past aside. Let's do this for the betterment of the mission. Like that would have been satisfying to me, but I feel like a lot of this is kind of artificial. Yeah, I gotta say Hangman's character did not feel completely locked into me. That That is definitely a, a part of the script where I was just like, I don't, I don't get it uh, fully. So there's a scene where we're on the aircraft carrier and Tom Cruise looking out over the ocean says, talk to me, Goose. Because again, you know, it, it's basically his form of prayer. He's, he's asking for guidance from Goose. And then he turns around and there's Warlock, Admiral Warlock right there. And he's like, Captain Mitchell, you're where you belong. At this moment, I'm starting to wonder if Warlock is real. Like, I think he might be like an alien or some sort of angelic force or just like an AI swarm that looks like a human. Because sometimes he's like too perfectly placed and says the too perfect right thing. Like, just the fact that he was there at that moment, I'm strangely here, and I strangely need, I'm going to tell you the exact thing you need to hear in this moment. <laughs> like, at, at that moment, if he just, like, like dematerialized, I would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. He might be magic, David. Well, would it surprise you to know that the first choice for Warlock in this movie was Will Smith with a golf bag? Oh, my God, David, the um, movie trope of a magical black man is back in the movie. <laughs> Yay, racist Hollywood, you'll never die. But then, yeah, we get some more awkwardness here when he's, like, choosing the crew. And Rooster, he wants to, like, say something to, to Maverick to thank him for his faith in him or something. And Rooster's like, Maverick, I, uh... And Mav goes, hey, let's just talk about it later. <laughs> which is, like, a little... It's leaning into the awkwardness, which I appreciate. But now, David, it is the actual mission we have been training for. The action set piece I will call Dagger Attack, because I think that's what they actually call the, uh, the part where the, the planes attack in the movie. Okay, so Maverick executes the first miracle with no trouble at all because they got to pull off two miracles. But Rooster is struggling with nerves and quickly falls behind. When his equipment fails, he seeks guidance in his long-dead mentor, Goose, who tells him to trust his instincts, forces him to, one might say, and Rooster is able to successfully execute the second miracle. But the mission is not done yet because they have to dodge surface-to-air missiles and enemy pilots. Rooster ends up in some trouble, but here comes Maverick to bail him out. But Maverick gets shot down in the process. Rest in peace, Maverick, who finally learned how to be selfless. A fitting end to a complicated character. He don't die, Mac Blake. I'm just joking. But this, uh... it is funny. But this is, <laughs> this is where the movie starts for me. From here on out, honest to God, a spectacular movie. 
I cannot say enough good things about it starting now. Starting with the flight footage. The flight footage is awesome. Like you feel like you're in the plane. They've set a uh, uh, they set a hard deck, I guess, at 100 feet. These planes are 100 feet off the ground, weaving in and out of terrain. This works for me. This I, I wished I had seen this in IMAX. I wanted to be a part of this experience. Fantastic. Yeah, because if they go any higher than that, they would end up on the radar. The surface to air missiles will be able to pick them off, and so they have to stay this low. And because of all those practice runs, the mission to me, like what they had to accomplish, was very clear, which is funny because we did the Dirty Dozen a while ago, and even though those characters were like, one, the fun begins, or whatever, they were counting down. That mission was still confusing to me. However, this thing, like I knew exactly what they had to do. Go up the mountain, go down the mountain. Like um, So this possibly complicated mission, at this point, to me at least, was very easy to follow. Yeah, no, this movie, <laughs> this movie is Maverick. It's very good at the plane stuff. At the nuts and bolts of this mission, awesome. Top-notch job communicating it to the audience. But, you know, the, the film student in me has a real problem with Maverick's character arc because in my estimation, part of his arc was he needs to learn how to become a teacher. He needs to learn how to you know, quit doing for himself and learn how to pass on his knowledge. And it would have been nice to see him be able to do that, you know, to see him impart his wisdom onto a team that could pull off the mission, but instead it's him pulling off the mission. So he hasn't really, he never really completed his arc to go beyond his shelf life as a pilot, I guess. That was my thing, you know, because... We as a society don't do a good job of making old people feel comfortable about getting old. There's no comfort there. But I think if this movie had given Maverick a reason beyond piloting, if if he could unlock a moment where he's like, oh my God, I got through to these kids and look at them. You know, no one had faith in them. No one thought they could pull off this mission successfully. I don't, it's, it's, it didn't land for me. Well, I mean, there is, there's a theme, right, of, of, you know, parents and children and, the idea that he is trying to protect his surrogate child, Rooster. And yeah, the, the way that he thinks the fact that he's able to trust Rooster and like set him free and let him live his life, let him be his own person, let him go on the mission, that that is the arc enough for, for Maverick. But you're right. I feel like a true achievement of that kind of character lesson would be the fact that he's able to teach Rooster and the Top Gun kids teach them or you know give them his wisdom to the point where he doesn't even need to be on the mission. Yeah, that that seems like that would have been a higher level, but I was okay with the fact that he was just able to bond with Rooster on a level that they previously had not reached. Cuz what you see here is possibly Maverick building a family, which is something that Pete Mitchell uh, does not really have. Gotcha. But this is going to be my first markout moment during this sequence. It's specifically the tomahawk strike on the base. You know, they they launched a slew of tomahawks. You see them flying through the air. It's it's such an interesting shot because they kind of like they just float. Like, you know, there's not really any sense of like velocity. It's just these these menacing <laughs> missiles on their way. And they hit that base and that base goes kablooey. It's a fantastic piece I marked out. So the tomahawk missiles, the fact they're gonna launch those first before uh, the F-15s took off. Was that something they had told us? I didn't remember that in any of the briefings going in. I, the first time I saw it was when they launched them and I knew they kind of had to pass through them. Yeah, I, same. But yeah, that I had the same reaction. That shot of that just giant swath of missiles just flying in the air is insane. Like imagine seeing that. Like imagine just being like some dudes like fishing on those mountains and you look over and the sky is just filled with missiles for a second. 
I kind of have a reoccurring nightmare of like looking up and seeing some nuclear missiles like slowly dropping in the sky. So yeah, that was a that was a crazy shot. That would have been awesome to see in IMAX for sure. But then you know Maverick gets shot down trying to basically protect Rooster. You know he he gets his plane in the way and prevents Rooster from getting shot down. And Hangman's on on the deck of, of the carrier and he's listening to all this. He's like. Let me go. You know, I'm sitting standby. I'm here as an alternate in case in case stuff gets hairy. Let me go out there. And Cyclone's like, no, you know, you stand down. You you stay on the deck. Mac is is Cyclone the villain in this movie? I don't think he is. I think that's a moment for Hangman. I don't think that was like Cyclone's villain moment. I think that was Hangman being like, oh shit, he's in trouble. I, I gotta go save my bro. Like I gotta go save my uh, my fellow uh, pilot. Whereas I think a real cocksure person who only cared about their own glory would have been like, well, sucks to be him. I wouldn't have fucked it up. Well, then if I may ask, who or what is the villain of this movie? I don't think this movie has a villain, David. Okay. I mean, if there's a movie about mountain climbing, I don't think Everest is the villain. I think it's just, uh, you know, I think the story is, is, like I said, it's kind of just about Maverick coming to terms with the fact that uh, uh, he needs to grow up to some extent and, and, and change his priorities. But David, there's a scene here where you, you talked about it. Yeah. Rooster is, he's not, he's kind of fucking up on the mission. Like he's not going fast enough. He's kind of taking the turns too slow. And uh, his, you know, laser operators, Payback and Fanboy, they're like, Rooster, we gotta, we gotta book it. And we go inside Rooster's cockpit for a second. And Maverick, who's been singing this whole time, talk to me, Goose. And Rooster says, talk to me, Dad. Uh, David, I got goosebumps, man. Like I know that that may seem cheesy, but that to me is the movie. I feel like if you have that, you have a movie. You have Maverick saying, talk to me, Goose. And if you're pitching me this movie, I'm Jim Paramount. And you're like, oh, Top Gun sequel. I don't know. It's got to be good. Because, you know, he's, he talks like, he sounds like that. And you're telling me like, okay, we meet Goose's son. It's Rooster. And we get to a moment where he's in a similar situation. And he says, talk to me, Dad, the same way that Maverick says, talk to me, Goose. You know, goosebumps, pun intended. Uh, that's great. That to me is the key to this movie. I loved it. That was another Mark out moment. I buy that. But at the same time. Time for me not to, how do I want to say that? I don't want to come across negative about it. It's, it's fine if you're like, that didn't hit for me or whatever. No, no, it's it's not that. It, it did hit for me. That's the thing. Uh, you know, I didn't quite mark out, but I completely get what you're saying. If anything, I lament the fact that we wasted so much of the first half on, you know, Penny and Maverick's struggles with just his job that we could have spent that time really developing these characters. I think that's what doesn't work for me overall is that, you know, this movie wants to be a pilot movie, you know, an action movie with heart, and it spent its time developing the heart in the wrong place. Like, you know, I remember I was watching this movie, The Bombshell, and I was like, hey, do you think at any point Maverick is thinking about Penny in, the, in this mission? Like, do you, do you get the sense that it's driving him in any way? We could have developed that relationship with Maverick and Rooster, Rooster and his dad, you know, the demons of, you know, of having to follow in that shadow. Like, there's so much real estate in the first half that we could have used better, and, and it's a shame that we were not getting it till now. It is interesting. The movie definitely was like, let's stick with Maverick's perspective all the time. That they did not want to take us to Rooster's perspective until this very moment. But I thought it was effective. After they hit their target and they get, they have to you know fly up to the point where the enemy's surface-to-air missiles uh, now can fire upon them. They start to have to outrun these missiles or use launch these like countermeasures behind the airplane so the missiles will hit the countermeasures instead of colliding with the airplanes and blowing up our, our friends and heroes. Uh, the scenes are awesome. But Rooster runs out of countermeasures, and instead of taking a missile right in the belly, Maverick flies up and, like a Secret Service, like takes the bullet, basically. 
And look, the movie it basically is saying like, I guarantee you're gonna mark out of this, you fucking sucker. And guess what? I'm a sucker because I marked out again. Uh, it got me another <laughs> like, oh wow, this movie rules uh, part. But you're right. I guess Maverick is now dead. <laughs> no, he's not dead. Uh, he wakes up in a snowbed just in time to run away from an enemy helicopter in an action set piece we'll call Top Ground. Before Maverick can get mega shot to death, Rooster swoops in to shoot down the helicopter and save the day momentarily before getting shot down himself. Maverick Tom Cruise runs to make sure Rooster's okay and yell at him for ruining his hero moment. Then they make up and decide to infiltrate the enemy base and steal a ride home. Now we get Maverick on the ground, jumping and hiding and trying not to get blown up by a helicopter. David, this tone is very different because now I feel like we are in a full-on action movie, not just like a plain action movie. And this definitely feels very disconnected from the first Top Gun. And that is okay. Like, I feel like at this moment, like, oh, this movie is not the same. This is not going to be a complete retread of Top Gun because now we're doing, we're ratcheting up a danger in a way that would have felt a little WTF in the first Top Gun movie, but here it's like, oh, okay, let's let's do it. It's almost like we could have spent more time proving that this is not your daddy's Top Gun. Like you're you're absolutely right. It felt it felt not so different, but it did feel like, oh wow, there's action going on in this action movie that isn't just you know in a plane by yourself. No, I was super into it. I, I thought it was cool. But yes, Maverick is mad at Rooster. He's like, I saved your life. That should have been the end. You shouldn't have get to save my life, stupid. Rooster's like, I did save your life. And like, okay, I guess now we're bros. I also noticed at this moment, Rooster now stops calling him Maverick and starts calling him Mav, which is like, oh, now we're buddies, I guess. I really enjoyed the exchange between Rooster and Maverick, you know, because they're mad at each other. You know, they, they, Maverick shoves Rooster into the snow. But then after they have their argument, you know, they're still, it's, it's good to see you. You know, they're kind of that tough exterior, but it's like, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too. This is the this is the movie I want. Like I don't know how to make it. That dynamic is what I would have really gone for in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Maverick and Rooster are thankfully able to steal an F-14 with zero interference from the enemy, and they are on their way home when they get intercepted by three enemy aircraft. Time for one last dogfight. Finally, a chance for this decorated pilot to prove how great he is. Maverick and Rooster managed to hold their own before running out of ammo, but thankfully Hangman was a student of Maverick's teachings because he violates a direct order not to engage and saves the day. So Maverick and Rooster are like, man, how are we going to get out of here? And then Maverick is like, you know what? No one seems to be paying attention to that old F-14 over there. And Rooster is not impressed. Rooster says, we don't even know if that bag of ass can fly. Mac, have you ever heard the term bag of ass? I assume it must be a Navy term, David. Only Navy people use because I've never heard of it. I'll let the Navy keep it. I, that's first time and the last time, I hope. But they managed to, yes, get this F-14 off the ground, fill it full of gas, uh, change its oil, whatever they needed to do, they do. We cut back to the aircraft carrier mission control. And they're like, uh, sir, uh, Goose's transponder is turned on, but it doesn't make any sense because he's airborne. And now we're seeing an F-14 on the radar or something? And then Warlock, again... He's like Maverick's PR guy goes, it can't be, it, it can't be, you know, as if being like, guys, everyone, it's Maverick, right? But it can't, he, is he, is he that good? Is Maverick that good, everyone? Everyone, let's stop and ask ourselves this question. Is Maverick that good? And then Cyclone goes, it's Maverick. Fuck everyone. Shut up, Warlock. They soon get swarmed upon by these fifth generation fighter planes we've heard so much about from the enemy. They start like, you know, signaling at, uh. Maverick who's like, oh, pointing at someone like, my comms aren't working or something is what his hand signals say. And then the enemy 
does some hand signals and Maverick's like, I don't know what the, that fucking means. There, This isn't working. Well, I like that at the beginning of Top Gun training, he was like, you know, he, when he threw out the handbook, he was like, forget it. They know everything you know, too. But that didn't go the other way because you don't know their hand signals. So uh, I, I think I'm going to start to root for these, uh, <laughs> these nondescript guys. But then we decided to take a moment and remind the audience of the stakes. And Rooster's like, Mav, can we outrun these guys? And he's like, no, not their missiles and guns. This is, then it's a dogfight. An F-14 against fifth-generation fighters? Well, it's not the plane, it's the pilot. You'd go after him if I wasn't there, but you are here. Come on, Mav, don't think, just do. It's just like a, that's kind of an awkward, kind of needless conversation. Like, hey, what's going on right now? Huh, what should we do? I think I know what you should do. Go for it. Like, it just, okay. <laughs> but you know what? Again, it's fine. I didn't mind it. Yeah, no, I didn't mind it either. Um, but it is one of those things where you're reminded, like, wait, why are we using F-18s for this mission? Like, hey, man, we spend a lot of money. We don't have fifth-gen fighters, too. Because, again, David, they said another plane would be perfect for that. But because that plane relies on GPS, which has been jammed because it's GPS jamming, they got to use these planes, which are not necessarily the perfect plane for this situation. So they are kind of like one hand tied behind their back. But now also... They're using a quote-unquote bag of ass, David, an F-14 <laughs> against these fifth-gen fighters. But Maverick is able to take out one with some sick-ass Maverick moves. And then he's got another one locked up in missile lock, and he shoots a missile at it. Uh-oh, bye-bye airplane, right? But no, because this enemy fighter basically does like a Tokyo Drift Matrix-style move, like beep, pop, pop, and all of a sudden does a little spin move in the air and dodges the missile. Look, I got no emotional connection to this faceless, nameless enemy pilot. But when the enemy plane did it, it was like, oh, fuck. And I, I marked out another mark out moment because it was basically like, you know, you shoot the Terminator right in the chest and you're like, yeah, we killed him. And then it pops right back up and you're like, ah, fuck. Like it just, it's basically being like, hey, Maverick, you thought it was going to be easy? No. That was a move that it, that was more impressive to me the second time around because the first time I watched, I have no point of reference to what planes can do and cannot do. Uh, so I don't know what's unusual or not unusual. I'm not Tom Jones. So, like, the second time I watched it, I was like, okay, that is pretty neat. I, I didn't quite mark out, but I, I do have a greater respect for it the second time. Yes, David, but like Tom Jones, your love is like candy on a shelf. Just want to be honest there. What a sweet boy. Rooster's going to have maybe my favorite line in the movie. It, it's not even a showcase line. It, you know, they're trying to, they're out of all their ammo. They're out of flares, they're, you know, and they're just trying to do ev evasive maneuvers. And Rooster's kind of nervous about all this. He's like, do some of that pilot shit. It's like, yeah, man. You know, the, your legend preceded you. You're the most decorated pilot we've got. Let's see some of that pilot shit. I really enjoyed that. And then, you know, they're they're out. They're out of ammo. They're out of options. They're out of luck. And they're about to get mowed down. But then a hangman shows up. Mac, this was my second mark out moment. You know, the fact that we, we expected hangman and hangman is here. Yeah, it was not in any doubt that Maverick was going to save the day. Or maybe that hangman was going to be the one doing the saving. However, we still got to live in that moment for a little bit where Maverick is out of options. The enemy has already tagged him a couple times with guns. They're about to get blown up by the enemy. And Maverick, who is trying to protect Rooster, now gets to die with him. We get to live in Maverick's worst nightmare just for a few moments before Hangman shows up. You know, in a movie where a happy ending was almost certain, the fact that we got to spend at least a little bit of time just feeling that tension was something and it, it, it was effective oh for sure no that's that is good movie going right there you know it, you don't have to be 
taken by surprise with stuff. You can see stuff coming a mile away, but if it's built well and it delivers like this does, it's completely satisfying. So the movie ends with Maverick successfully landing the F-14 without any landing gear and being given a hero's welcome by everyone on board. Maverick and Rooster hug it out, and now Rooster is a part of Maverick's life, moving out to the desert with him and helping him fix planes. Penny even makes the drive from San Diego to keep hooking up with him in a relationship that is destined for success. I'm sorry, San Diego? Is that a... Forgive me, Fighter Town, of course. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, Fighter Town, USA. Yeah, now that's how I know it. This is a moment when those uh, dudes on the aircraft carrier deck should be high-fiving. Because, yeah, they managed to catch this airplane in a net when it had no front landing gear. And I think the back wheels had uh, Dave Chappelle's character from Con Air still stuck on the pinball. Uh, was that his name? Who cares? <laughs> fuck that transphobic fuck. <laughs> but there's a moment where they're, you know, Maverick and Rooster are on the deck and they're looking at each other. And they very easily could have been like, you can guard my tail or wing or whatever, whatever that line is from Top Gun. They did not do it. And I got to say, thank you. Thank you, movie, for not forcing that line. And I appreciated that. Well, you know what? Uh, even better than that, like Maverick goes out. He says directly, thank you for saving my life. It is the most humility that the character has shown. It was the most um, satisfying moment that I had with Maverick. It, you know, he's finally like, I'm, I am fallible. I am human. I am capable of, of being killed at a moment's notice. I have to appreciate the, the things that keep me alive. I, I, I did appreciate that. Uh, except uh, right before that, uh, when they're landing, when they're coming in for a landing, it's in a callback to the original Top Gun, he buzzes the tower in a manner of speaking. He kind of buzzes past Cyclone and shakes up Cyclone. It didn't quite hit the same way that it did in the original because I didn't like that guy in the original and I'm okay with Cyclone right now. But you know what? I'll let the movie have it. Fucking Maverick and Rooster home. Hell yeah. They did a great job. Yes, David. And that is the end of the movie. We are getting exiting the highway to the danger zone and now we're taking highway to the retirement zone. Who loves eating at 5 p.m.? Uh, Maverick and Penny do. Because that, David, is Top Gun Maverick. All right, David, let's get some stats. How many mark-out moments did you have? How many moms in this movie? I had a couple moms. I had two. How about you? Five. I was marking out all over the place. David, is this someone's favorite movie? Mac Blake, this is America's movie. And I'm not I'm not saying that sarcastically. Like, you know, people enjoyed the shit out of this movie. You know, I don't know if it's their favorite movie, but this was a heck of a good time for a lot of people, and, and I'm happy for it for that. Based on the number of people that asked me if I have seen this movie yet... Like, that's always interesting when people are like, oh, did you see this movie? And they're like, did you see it yet? Like, assuming that I would see it. I think people w were super excited about this. I guarantee you, yes, this is someone's favorite movie. All right, David, time for punch-ups. As everybody knows, we're the ultimate movie doctors. David, how would you fix this movie? How would you punch it up? Let's talk about Penny first. We, we said it earlier. Let's just lose her entirely. You know, I know you want to establish something for Maverick to look forward to after he's done being a pilot, you know, to go on to his later years. This just doesn't work for me. You're introducing a new character in a sequel that we have to form a bond with when he doesn't, you know, he as a character doesn't know how to form a bond with her. I would like to lose her and replace her with a cameo by Kelly McGillis. And this is just fantasy casting because I don't even know if she'd want to accept the part. Like I know there's a lot of criticism that she wasn't in the movie for one reason or another, but I got the sense I'm willing to meet the producers halfway and assume that Kelly McGillis doesn't really do movies or television anymore she's just not hollywood if you could have just had a cameo where she's like a big government muckety muck and he goes to talk with her and she kind of gives it to him straight like yeah i did fall in love with you but you're this 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 and this and everyone sees it and everyone's seen it for the past 30 years i think you could have taken everything they tried to do with penny and do it in a scene 
I also said throughout the movie, or I, I said I said at the beginning of the show, I should say, that this was like a choose-your-own-adventure that kept picking the wrong pages for me. If I had to fix one page of this script or one moment of this script to, to do the most benefit for the script overall, Rooster's flying that F-14 home. Maverick's getting in the backseat, and he's having a teaching moment. He, hey, I'm going to impart my wisdom to you in a very direct way, and you are going to help us fly home, and you are going to show me that you have grown into the pilot that I never thought you could be. I owe you an apology. That would have done a lot for me in terms of fixing a lot of relationships that didn't quite connect. What about you, Mac? What are you, what are you punching up here? I'd be on board with that lose penny thing as long as we don't lose Jennifer Connelly. Maybe swap her out for John Hamm or, or some other higher-up character. That would have been interesting. Although I do like John Hamm in this movie, too. First of all, they got to fix that fucking scene. They got to fuck. You got to add some eroticism in there. Now, granted, in the first movie, Charlie was a Top Gun instructor. Maverick is one of her students. So that was kind of like a dangerous little forbidden relationship. Where is this relationship between Penny and Maverick of two people that just seem like they're settling for each other? That wasn't as dangerous. <laughs> kind of hard to replicate. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe try and spice it up a little bit. Also, I talked about this a little bit earlier on, which... Uh, something a sequel can do is they hit the beats of the original, but change them in kind of a surprising way. I feel like they blew a huge opportunity here. Because, David, do you remember when the student Maverick first meets instructor Charlie in the first Top Gun? It's a scene where Maverick spots Kelly McGillis at a bar and they he like, you know, sings, uh, uh, you've lost that love and feeling to her or whatever. Pretty aggressively hitting on her, even to the point where he follows her into the women's bathroom. A little bit of a creepy move but also trying to cement that he is uh, just the world's cockiest uh, pilot on earth. Let's ginger swap that. You know what I mean? So Tom Cruise, he is your instructor now. Have Phoenix see this old dude. She's like, I'm on a silver fox hunt. I'm going to pick this dude up. Excuse me, Mav. Uh, are you going to like, I don't know what song she sings. Maybe wet ass pussy. I don't know. But basically like, hey, get him up. Afterwards, when Tom Cruise is like, I don't want to, no, thank you. And then she like falls him into the bathroom. And she's like, you know, hell, let's make this thing happen, crazy boy. I don't know. That would have been really <laughs> funny. That would have been fucking awesome. Also, David, my final punch up. We see Maverick and Penny flying off the distance and Maverick's like, you know, his hobby plane. Great. Credits roll great. Come back mid-credit scene. We left. What was the last thing we saw Rooster doing? Oh, he was helping. Uh, he was helping Maverick. He was hanging out in the hangar with him. Yeah. So he's in the hangar and we see a shot of Rooster from behind. And in the background, we hear, gee, choo, 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 choo. Rooster turns around then looks up, and we hear in the voice of, I don't know, maybe a transforming robot leader, like, Rooster, the Decepticons are coming. And then, oh, oh shit, we're part of the Paramountverse now. Here comes some Transformers, bitch. It hurts my heart how good of an idea that is. <laughs> Choo-choo-choo-chuck. <laughs> like, I got to send you two jokers to roll out. I would have lost my mind. That would have been the coolest fucking thing. They could have had like the president of Paramount come out after that and be like, we got no plans to make this movie. We just go for a laugh. Enjoy yourselves, everyone. Didn't that feel great though? Wasn't that fun? We'll see you next year. Psych, Mike, come on. We're just having some fun though. All right, David, speaking of having fun, why don't we enter an old timey video store? It's the Punch Mountain Video Store. Yay, I love it here. Yeah, because it's an all action movie video store and we have three copies of Top Gun Maverick 2 stock, what subsections of action would you put them in? Okay, first one's going in franchise action. We've got a second Top Gun. Perhaps a third. You know, it made a boatload of money and you got hunky young actors to be in it. So, yeah, put it in the franchise action. Uh, second one's going in military action. You know, it's it's military light. It's not, you know, an aggressively warish movie, but it's still military action. It's, it's good action. And then the third one, 
I'm split. You know, because it's very much a home for the holidays action movie. It's very much a movie that the whole family can enjoy. But Mac, Tom Cruise has a lot of action movies. And sooner or later, we're going to have to have a Tom Cruise shelf. So I'm going to lean towards the Tom Cruise shelf on the third copy. I can't argue with any of those solid stockings. Okay, David, now it is time for judgment. We got to determine the ranking, the position of Top Gun Maverick on Punch Mountain itself, the definitive ranking of action movies. And just as a current reminder, David, at the summit, the top of the mountain, we have Terminator 2 Judgment Day at number one, followed by Raid 2, The Matrix, Prey, and RRR at number five. The base of the mountain, 15, 16, 17, we have Passenger 57, Deadly Prey, and The Poseidon Adventure. And below that, David, at the visitor center for the Punch Mountain, the family changing room inside that visitor center, we have Chappie coming in at 18. So David, before we get to the mountains rankings, where would you put this movie? Oh, I'm flexible. I could see this thing going as high as <laughs> below the rock and as low as above Charlie's Angels. It, it, you know, it's a hard one to judge because, you know, I think even uh, Christopher McQuarrie said it in an interview where it's like a lot of people see this as an action movie. I think of it more as a drama. It does play that way. It does uh, play a lot like a drama. The action's awesome. Golly, the, the third act, I cannot say enough good things about it. But it's inconsistent with the rest of the movie. And it's not quite the same sort of kinetic action that you get with like a, uh, you know, hand-to-hand combat or gun foo or something like that. You know, you're sitting in a plane. It, it There's a disconnect there. But I'll defer to the mountain. I'm okay with, with a number of options on this one. I would rank this higher, personally. I might even put this below RRR and above Hard Target. I mean, it is interesting because it's action is plane action, where it's just kind of like planes flying around instead of people fighting. But it's effective, and I feel like that climax, there's there's some real palpable tension, and it just hits a lot of highs in that thing, and it hits them effectively. So yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree with Christopher McQuarrie. It does feel like a drama, but a drama with a lot of very enjoyable action. Oh, David. Speaking of enjoyable action, look at those rocks come tumbling down. Yippee, 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 yippee. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Who writes my dialogue? Fire that piece of shit. Uh, but, David, the rocks have come tumbling down, revealing the golden letters, which indicates the position on the mountain. And we see that, sure enough, Top Gun Maverick is now number nine on the mountain. So it goes Hard Target, Dread, The Rock, and then Top Gun Maverick, and then Yes, Madam, Cliffhanger, The Driver, etc. Good job. Top Gun Maverick. David, do you hear that uh, horn? Oh, I do. That's a horn calling us to action. On this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're spotlighting the Southern Poverty Law Center. Led by a strong team of civil rights lawyers, the SPLC is a catalyst for racial justice in the South and beyond, working in partnership with communities to dismantle white supremacy, strengthen intersectional movements, and advance the human rights of all people. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Also, for every review we get on iTunes, we'll add $1 to our donation, up to a certain amount, obviously, in case any bots are out there waiting to bankrupt us. And hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on the air. For more information on the Southern Poverty Law Center or to donate directly to them, visit splcenter.org. All right, folks, that'll do it for another episode of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up next week. Also from 2022, 
and directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood, we're watching The Woman King. We'll see you next week. Bye, bye.